0: You have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter two. We have been looking at the Bible book by book. We've been given one we, we have been giving. One message for every book of the Bible, and we have been uh, finding a key passage within that book uh, from which to look at uh, the book as a whole, all of the themes that run through it, looking to see, as it were, God's plan of redemption being revealed uh, as it happens through the Bible. And so uh, these first few weeks, it has not made much of a difference, but as we get longer into the series and we want to look at things unfolding chronologically, uh, there will be some Uh, difference in the book order in which we take it, Uh, but this morning we come just after having looked at the book of Joshua to the book of Judges, and it was with great, great triumph that the book of uh, Joshua ended. It was with great hope because we read in those final times that that through Joshua, God gave rest to His people. That is, they were uh, faithful to God and the covenant that they had made with Him, and God was faithful to them, faithful to allow them to go and take possession of the land of Canaan as their inheritance according to the promises of Abraham. But even in the midst of that great sense of triumph and hope, we now come to the book of Judges, which begins very much with a sense of disappointment. It is now a bitter triumph that is left in our mouths having finished the book of Joshua. It begins very much as the book of Joshua left off with the death of Israel's leader, Joshua. And in that we read that though Israel had initially had rest from her enemies, she was not faithful to fully drive them out of the land. You'll remember that when Israel took the land of Canaan by the Lord's command, they were to lay siege in the major major cities, destroying their armies their political and religious leaders, and driving out the rest of the inhabitants. And you'll remember we said this was not motivated by ethnic cleansing or a simple desire to get the land or to enslave a people to serve Israel, much as they were enslaved in Egypt. Rather, this war in Canaan was in fact an act of divine judgment on the pagan peoples of that land by God himself. Through his people Israel, God was bringing judgment upon them for their sin. And back in the book of Joshua, we see God's people largely doing all that God asks of them to do. And so they had success. But now as we begin the book of Judges, we find the people's faithfulness begin to wane. Though they started strong, they finished poorly. And instead of continuing the work of uh, of of driving the peoples fully out of the land of Canaan. They basically kind of pushed them out to the edges of the land that they were actually supposed to possess. They allowed certain groups to still be on the edges of the land that God himself had promised. But they basically said, we're done fighting. We've had enough. We're, we're, we're not going to go ahead and push them out, but we're still a little worried that they may be trouble for us later. So we're going to enter into covenants with them. We will enter into treaties that they will treat us nice and we will not push them on out of the land of Canaan. Canaan. And the results of disobeying God plunge Israel into a vicious cycle of sin and idolatry and gracious salvation that we read about in the book of Judges. And as we are seeking to gain a better understanding of Judges, we want to look at part of this book's introduction. We want to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 19. So I would encourage you to follow along as I read. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place, Baakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. May God bless the reading of His Word. This morning, what we see, not only in this text, but this text as it again tells us what we're going to read in the entire book of Judges, is this cycle of God's people leaving God then God, and then God sending judgment upon them, and then yet God saving them graciously through judges, and the whole thing happening over and over and over again, and so much as the title in the note says, what we see is nothing less in this book than salvation by god 's grace alone, and as we seek to understand the book of Judges, what we will see are some lessons that we still need to understand today as we seek to understand what it means to be saved by God's grace alone. So we want to look at four things this morning. First, we want to see the faithlessness of disobedience. The faithlessness of disobedience. We see this in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. You know, it's very interesting uh, how Judges is written and uh, the, the... Scholarly people have a field day with the, the history of composition, blah, 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 blah. blah. Doesn't matter. Uh, what we're concerned with is the fact that God is ultimately the author of this book, and however He put it together, He has given it to us as it is. And it is with great uh, irony and literary skill that we have this comparison between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1, you have this very simple accounting, this straightforward kind of bare facts accounting of Israel's life, especially its failure to drive out the peoples. And when you read that chapter, you read things like they could not drive out the people because they had iron chariots. That is, they had superior military technology. Then we also read things like the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Israel couldn't drive them out because the Canaanites were simply more stubborn than them. They were unwilling to flee even in the face of Israel's war. And you begin to read through chapter one and you, and the author kind of lulls you in because you begin to feel sympathy with the Israelites. You begin to read these things, things that they were probably telling one another to rationalize their lack of faithful obedience to the Lord. Oh, sure. I I understand. Well, sure. I mean, Gosh, if you're going against iron chariots, I mean, I understand why you just not want to fool those guys. I mean, who wants to get run over by an iron chariot, right? Oh, they were stubborn. They just didn't want to leave. They didn't know what was good for them. Well, I understand that too. I get, yeah, sure. I understand. You just want to let them, just let them stay there and you're not going to bother them and they won't bother you and you'll be, uh, have peaceful coexistence. Well, then you get to chapter two and it's like a smack in the face that knocks you out of the chair. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? God says, there's no rationalizing. There's no convincing yourself that what you did was not wrong. It was sin and nothing more and nothing less. And it's a sobering reminder, I think we should take away from this, of how easy it is to deceive ourselves when it comes, especially to our own sinfulness. We are, we are masters at convincing ourselves that what we did was okay. What we did was right, given the circumstances. Regardless of what God says in this word, regardless of the explicit black and white instructions we have, it was okay for us to do what we did. We're masters at that. And God says, I will have none of it. I will have none of it. There is no excuse for you not fulfilling the covenant promises that you made to me because I was faithful in the promises that I made for you. Michael Wilcock, a commentator and pastor, insightfully describes this imaginary dialogue between chapters 1 and 2. God asked the people, why didn't you carry out my plans? And they they reply, "Well, we lack the military capability for that final push against the Canaanites. And God replies, didn't I say to you that as long as you were willing to obey me, I would fight the battle for you? Didn't I promise that if, if you went out according to my word, that I would be there with you and ensure your success? Something's wrong here. Something is wrong here. What was wrong was Israel's lack of faith in God. At the end of the day, that's what their disobedience came down to. They simply didn't trust God. God had said, if you obey my voice, if you obey my word, what did he tell Joshua? You will have success in all that you do. And what did he tell them to do? Take the land of Canaan as your inheritance. Drive out all the pagan people. Destroy their false gods and their false worship. And I will be with you all the way to make sure that you have the strength, and the ability, the capability to carry it out. And so if they did not do that, the problem was not God. The problem was not the Canaanites' superior technology. It was not their stubbornness. It was Israel's lack of faith. They just didn't believe in God. Instead of trusting Him to defeat their enemies, some of the Israelites made covenants with their enemies, treaties against future conflict. Instead of trusting God to provide for them, other Israelites enslaved the pagan peoples, they might be guaranteed hard workers for their fields. They didn't trust God despite the fact that God had already shown himself trustworthy. If notice, and I know sometimes these things blow past you and you just, you're not, you know, unless you've got a study Bible that's got a big red sign saying, hey, this is important, this is important. These names are just going all over the place. It doesn't mean anything to you. But notice where the angel comes up from, Gilgal. Now, what happened at Gilgal? Now, if you're here last week, you better be able to answer that question because we talked a lot about Gilgal. Okay, But just in case, I won't put you on the spot, so I won't call on people. Although I'm thinking about some of you. No, but what happens there? Remember at Gilgal, Joshua's was looking over at Jericho and he's saying, man, I don't know how we're going to do this. we got, uh, we got a whole generation of people that have never engaged in conflict. I don't know how I'm going to take this city. And guess what? The angel of the Lord, the commander of the armies of the Lord, approaches Joshua and he says, I will fight for you. I will guarantee that you have success in all of your conquests. Well, guess what that was on the back end of? Gilgal was also the place where God parted the River Jordan that they might walk across dry land into the Promised Land. It was, again, where he promised that just as he had been with Moses, so also, Joshua, he would be with he would be with Joshua and with the people insofar as they followed Joshua's success. So Gilgal represents God saying, I know that you saw my great works in Egypt. That was 40 years ago. I'm promising you I am going to be with you again. Just as I'm part of the Red Sea, I'm part of the Jordan River. Just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with Joshua. And now I'm telling you to go and fight these people. You're not ready to fight them. Uh, humanly speaking, they're going to they're kick your butts all over Canaan. But I'm going to go be with you. Trust in me. He had shown himself trustworthy. He had shown them his grace and his glory. And God had proven that his people could put their faith in him without reservation, but they refused to trust him. God just wasn't enough. He could not be fully trusted and relied on. So they refused to take the land. The question is, how did Israel wind up like this? after all they had seen, after all they experienced, how did Israel come to doubt God's goodness and his faithfulness? Well, this brings us to the second thing that we want to see this morning, and that is the importance of remembering. The importance of remembering. When you read history, you realize very quickly that the settlers that first came to North America from the United Kingdom came because they sought freedom from the Church of England, not Not freedom to be atheists, as you read about sometimes today, but freedom to worship God according to their convictions. Freedom to worship God in a way not mandated by the Church of England. And virtually all then of the settlers that came from 1620 to 1640 were true Christians. They were passionate about their faith in God. But by 1662, the first generation realized that many of their children and many of their grandchildren were only nominal believers, if believers at all. The faith was not being passed down to the next generation. Their their sons and their grandsons were not passionate about Christ as they themselves were. That was a problem for, for many reasons, not least of which because of the fact that society at that time was still built around the church. And so our forefathers created something called the halfway covenant. What this allowed was for people who did not profess a conversion experience to still be halfway members of the church. They couldn't vote on church business, but they could still participate at the Lord's table, oddly enough. Well, what's interesting is that this was an effort to keep, to keep family members, wayward members, people that did not even profess faith in Christ around the things of God in the hopes that they might be saved. But frankly, it didn't work. It didn't work. And you know what it took? It took the first great awakening to change the course of the church in this country again. In fact, it was a man by the name of Solomon Stoddard who created the halfway covenant and it was his grandson, Jonathan Edwards, that God actually used to bring about revival in this country and to break down and show the foolishness of that halfway covenant. Instead of pushing harder with the gospel, the church unfortunately pulled back, lowering standards for church membership, de-emphasized the need for true conversion. It was frankly a sad time in the church. And that situation that sparked those events was similar to what we see going off in the life of Israel at the beginning of the book of Judges. Notice the contrast between the two generations spoken of here. The generation that Joshua led in to take the land and the next. Verse 7, the people served the Lord. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. In verse 10, and all that generation also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You have a generation that either experienced the Exodus as children or they were told about it as they grew up. They experienced a reminder of God's power as they entered the, land, the, the promised land at Gilgal and continued to conquer Canaan as they were led by Joshua. They knew and they cherished the grace of God in their lives and it led them to serve the Lord. But they failed to pass that faith on to the next generation. Their children did not know the Lord or the work He had done For Israel. Now again, you see how these things begin to build on one another when you you read the Bible chronologically, don't you? Because remember in just two books ago in Deuteronomy, we saw God's plan to ensure this didn't happen, didn't we? Deuteronomy chapter six. God's people were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength, and they were to teach their children to do the same. These Israelites got the first part right, but they somehow failed to do the second. Now remember, though, what we also said about Deuteronomy 6. It isn't meant to be a guarantee for success. Children can receive all the right instruction and yet still rebel and choose not to believe. But notice what the text says. That generation did not know the Lord, number one, that is, they did not have personal faith in Him. It is no, in the sense of intimately knowing someone or something, they did not know the Lord as I know my wife and my kids and as I know you. There was no relationship there. And more than that, secondly, they did not know the work the Lord had done for Israel. This is the failure right here. The first is a result of the second. They didn't know the Lord. Why did they not know the Lord? Because they did not know the work he had done for Israel. There was a failure to fulfill Deuteronomy 6, a failure to pass on stories, the instruction, the law, all the glories of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And the result was a faithless generation. And so Dale Ralph Davis is right when he says, the Bible is clear, amnesia produces apostasy. As God's people today, we have to understand that we are not immune to this. We have been entrusted with the task as a church and as families and as brothers and sisters in Christ to never let one another forget to never let one another forget. You always see, at least I, I always see it. Maybe I'm just, I'm just plugged into it. But it seems like there is not a week or a month that goes by that I see a bumper sticker somewhere or a t-shirt or something that has the outline of the Twin Towers and the words, never forget. And friends, as God's people, whether it's whatever picture you want to put on there, whether it's the word of God and the totality of all that he has said and done, or whether it's the cross itself, placard among, above our lives, and the mission for one another especially is to never forget. To never forget all that God has done, not just in what we see him saying in his word, not just the things that we're even going to see today, the grace that he pours out to his people, but don't forget what he's done in our lives This is part of the reason why every single Wednesday night we take time to say, who has a testimony tonight about what we see the Lord doing in our lives? Because we have a calling to one another. And as parents, especially to our children, we don't let one another forget. Because the moment we start forgetting, the moment that the things of this world become such a a blinder to us, that we forget the Lord and His grace, Then we begin to drift away from the Lord and His grace. When we forget all that He has already done for us, that's when we begin to move off. It's very easy for someone who thinks that it's all about what they do to one day just throw their hands up and say, forget it. I just can't keep going. If my salvation and my relationship to God depends on what I'm doing for Him, I I can't continue. That's why Christianity is not based on that. Christianity is based on what God has already done for you. And that's why he says over and over and over. This is why we see the failure of the judges here, uh, of the people in Judges, is that they forgot to remember. They forgot to tell their kids what the Lord had done and the result was a faithless generation. We need to make sure that we're not like that. We need to make sure that we don't ever forget or what we will find are the kids that are now in the pews will grow up to be a generation that either loves the Lord nor cares anything about what he has done, both in the Bible and in our lives as well. Therefore, we must remember the importance of remembering. The third lesson that we are to learn and that Israel had to learn in in the book of Judges is the enslavement of idolatry. The enslavement of Idolatry. The nation of Israel as a whole didn't just turn away from the Lord. They also turned towards the gods of the Canaanite peoples. I'm sorry, I'm burning up up here. It's like a sauna. Got to get some different lights or something. I don't know what it is, but look at verse 11. The people of the Lord did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Who was Baal? Baal was the god of the Canaanite peoples, a fertility god, and his female consort was the Ashtoreth. And given the nature of our audience, we don't want to go too far into this, but you can imagine a fertility god with a consort to the degree that he was worshipped in the way that he was supposed to be worshipped. It was then hoped that God would basically see the activity of his worshippers, be reminded of what his job was as the god, and participate with his consort, Astruth, the result being growing crops and reproducing livestock. So to the degree that we were fertile in our worship, the gods would be fertile and therefore the land would in turn be fertile. You can imagine, on many levels, the lure of worshiping these gods, not with just the raw carnality of it, but also think about what we already know about the land of Canaan. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. It is a land flowing with fertility. And instead of driving out the Canaanite peoples, the Israel, Israel, some of the Israelites have become friends with them. And you can imagine as the Canaanites are going off to worship the way they were supposed to them in any way. You can you can imagine the Israelites saying, Where are you guys going? So we're going to worship Baal. Really? Well, what's Baal about? And they explain it. They say, the Canaanites say, Well, who do you worship? Well, we worship the Lord God. Well, what has he done? And if he had a really good Israelite, they would say, Well, he brought us out of Egypt. He did this and this. And you know, you can imagine the Canaanites saying, you know, well, that, you know, that's good to have a God that's that's mighty and powerful and and to protect you. But you know, I I'm raising crops here. I need a God who's going to be here, looking over this, giving me fertility in the land. And the Israelite says, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think I'm going to go worship Baal with you. We face similar temptations today, don't we? Probably one of the the biggest that uh, has persisted for a long time now is this, this mistaken belief that somehow God isn't enough for our lives. That what he has given us in the scriptures is just not enough for us. That somehow we need more. The Bible doesn't say everything after all. And that's why if you're In a community group on Sunday nights, you know, the the biggest argument is, well, we need science in addition to God. We have to have science or else we wouldn't know where we came from or how things happen. The Bible doesn't really talk about those kind of things. So we've got to have the Bible, God's Word, then we also need science to come along with it. Or perhaps one that I've heard many times uh, in various situations, perhaps you've heard as well, and that is simply that, you know, the Bible is good for religious matters, but when it comes to some of the personal problems and our struggles, we need more than that. We need psychology to go to the psychiatrist and plug down a couple hundred dollars over several years to ensure that we know because the Bible just doesn't have everything there to help us. God isn't enough. And to some of these things I want to say, well, you know, that's amazing that for, you know, you know, when did psychology come? The last 200 years that for, you know, 5,800 years or whatever before that people just didn't know how to live because they didn't have psychology, they didn't have science, they didn't have microwave ovens, well, that's, that's pretty sad, isn't it? What does 2 Peter 1 tell us? God has given us in His Word everything we need for life and godliness. So, do I love science? Absolutely. I woke up with a vertigo headache this morning. I didn't think I was going to get out of bed. My head was swimming and I'm trying to look over sermon notes. And I'm thinking, this is not good. And you know what I did? I prayed, but I also thank God that He created, uh, gave us science in such a way that there's something called ibuprofen. And I popped a couple of those bad boys back with a glass of water and laid down for 30 minutes. So we're not against science. Sometimes, sometimes a secular counselor, they get it right. But guess what? They often get it wrong. Because they don't have a view of man that says we are inherently sinful. And very often, all of our paranoias and our phobias and so many other things have their root in sin. And so they may treat the symptom, but they're not getting to the heart of the matter. And you see, just like the Canaanites are telling the Israelites, boy, if you want your crops to be fertile, if you want, if you want to have livestock, just reproduce, reproduce, you got to go worship Baal. God's not enough for you. So also, we face the temptation every day to be idolaters. God is not enough. You need something else to make you happy, healthy, or wise. But it's not surprising, is it, what we read in verse 14. After they go after the Baals, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. But what we may not expect is what we read right after that. The Lord gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold his people into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible Distress. Not only did God do as He promised, discipline His people for their faithlessness, making the false gods a thorn in their side and a snare for them. But Israel also learned the truth about idols. They will enslave you. Unlike the true God, false gods require us to do something in order to get what they're promising. The more we crave what they offer, whatever it is, pain, free life, pleasure, power, respect money sex whatever it is that, that the idol it is that, that that has that we think we need the more we will find ourselves giving anything we possibly can to that idol in order to get what it promises but the sad reality is it's always powerless it can never give us what we think we're going to get and so we get caught up in this vicious cycle of thinking, I've got to have this thing. I've got to have this thing. I'll do anything to get it. And we become enslaved. We become in bondage to it. We become subservient to it. But then when we actually get what we're promised, it's hollow. And it rings less than true. And it's not at all as satisfying as we thought it was going to be. And we wind up thinking, well, well, well maybe I just need to give myself more over to the idol. I need more of the thing. And very often we find that we're no longer servants of the one true God. We're servants to a false god. And all the while, all the while, the Lord himself stands ready to offer us more than we can ever imagine. If we'll just trust him for it. He has said every blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. He says, at my right hand in Psalm 16 are pleasures forevermore." And so we're out here playing in all kinds of sin, thinking it's going to make it happy the whole time. God is saying, you don't need that stuff. Come to me. I will make your heart satisfied. I will will cause you to feel the kind of deep and lasting pleasure that your heart aches for. Trust in me, and there will be no life of anxiety, even in the worst of times and situations. The more that we trust him, the more that we trust the Lord, the more we will see that we don't need anything besides God to be happy. And that's all that an idol is. It's something that we think we need besides God to make us happy. And if we're not careful in our lives, in fact, I would say if we're honest, we would see that probably we're pursuing at least one idol in our lives right now. There's something that we think that we need besides God, and we're giving quite a bit of ourselves over to acquire what that idol is offering. But what, unfortunately, Solomon Stoddard and his descendants had to learn the hard way, what the judges, the people in the book of Judges had to learn the hard way, and what we need to understand is that there's no such thing as halfway discipleship. There's no such thing as a halfway Christian. You're either a Christian or you're not. And God says this is the way it is because if you try and divide yourself and your worship and your love among all these other gods, you will not be happy. And in fact, ultimately, you will turn away from me And find yourself in hell. Therefore, he says, love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not just because he's worthy of it and he deserves it, but because it is what is best for you. And ultimately, this is what brings us to our last point this morning, and that is the grace of salvation. Look at this amazing contrast between verses 14 and 16. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Did you catch the amazing contrast there? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, yet he saved them. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain a God who's with angry at his people and yet saves them from sin? How do you explain that kind of tension in God? Well, think about it like this. Suppose you were with a person, a good friend, and he found out that his wife was cheating on him. And not just like innuendo or, or maybe, but no, it was a clear sad fact his wife was being unfaithful. And you were with him when he heard the news here's the evidence your wife has been cheating on you. And his response was, man, oh, well, that's life. What would you think about that guy? He doesn't love his wife. Maybe he's never loved her. I mean, there should be something more than that, right? There should be an immediate sadness and then this, this raging anger that his love and affection has been trampled on. And, and who's this other guy? Then you would know, boy, he, you know, he is passionate about his wife. Why? Because real jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. We see a God who who loves his people, not because they're lovable, but because he has chosen to do so. And when they spurn his love in righteousness and holiness, he inflames to jealousy. And all throughout the book what we see is the people turning away from God to pursue idols and yet then finding themselves enslaved to those idols and the, and the other peoples that worship them. We see them under the discipline of the Lord, crying out, calling out for relief. And what does God do? He comes and He saves them. Time and time and time again. By raising up people called judges. And they're not like what we think of, like Judge Judy or something. They're not, nothing legal about it, okay? These are military leaders that the God, that the Lord raises up to free his people from the oppression they suffer under the Canaanites. Some of them are famous people you've heard of, like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. And others of them you've never probably heard of unless you've read judges. People like Othniel and Ehud and Barak. These men come from all kinds of of moral failings and all kinds of walks of life. Among the judges we find a reluctant farmer, a left-handed assassin, a fearless bandit, and a sex-addicted Nazarite. And God uses all of them to rescue His people from the hands of their enemies. But what we see again the sad fact is that this is a cycle it's not just one judge that rises up it is no less than 12 judges because with every victory the people get themselves and their minds right and they worship the lord for a while and they turn back and their sin is even worse Verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges from them, the Lord was the judge and he saved them from the hand, was with the judge, and saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And yet God continues to reach down time and again, showing grace to sinners who don't deserve it. And despite failure after failure after failure, God still saves them. So what we see in the book of Judges is not a series of role models to imitate. Yeah, there are a couple of good judges at the beginning, but towards the end, the judges are just as sinful as their people. In every judge, the story is pushing us to ask ourselves several questions. How can a God keep saving a sinful people? When will these people finally be free from sin and idolatry? When will a judge bring lasting, not temporary, salvation? And what the book of Judges helps us to see is that there's only one true Savior, God Himself. And that the salvation that we find in each and every judge is simply an echo of the one true and final judge, the final Savior that God sends in the flesh, in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who so identifies with his sinful people that he willingly offers up his life for them on the cross. Though he was perfectly righteous, God the Son bears the full weight of the wrath of God the Father towards sin. Why? To show that God is both holy and just, righteous and merciful. He is a God who loves sinners and he saves them by his grace, not because they deserve it, not because he earns it, but because he loves them. This morning in the midst of not only learning all of the, from the bad example of the judges, the thing that we need to know the most is that God loves us because he loves us, not because we deserve it. And the salvation that we have is by grace alone. And when we come to understand that, when we come to realize that, when we come to remember that day in and day out, we will find ourselves not nearly as tempted to sin, not nearly worried about this life, but both in love with God and willingly and joyfully serving him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the cross and for what you do in our lives. And Father, it is so sad to us to see not only the people of Israel failing to remember what you did for them in your grace, but Father, how often we ourselves forget what you have done for us in Christ. And the result is that we live, we try to live as halfway disciples, not giving ourselves fully to you. Father, we pray that that would not be the case, that Father, you would build us up in our faith by reminding us of the fact that we are saved by grace alone. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.